A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the White Lotus Podcast, where the Lorehounds your guides to your Italian dream vacation. I'm John. And I'm David. And this is our coverage of White Lotus Season 2, Episode 3, Bull Elephants. Each episode, we will take a closer look at different themes, references, and history relevant to the episode. Today, we're going to be discussing some more Greek mythology and the Testo di Moro motif that is being used in this season. Then we'll move into a scene-by-scene breakdown of the episode, followed by our Deadpool conversations and listener feedback. A reminder, you can send us feedback to whitelotus at thelorehounds.com, and we'll get to those emails in our next episode. We'd love to hear your hot takes, thoughts, and predictions. If you want to talk White Lotus with us sooner, join us over at the Bald Move Discord. Link in the show notes and at baldmove.com. We have a well-moderated server and a dedicated channel set up for White Lotus. Each episode is siloed, so you can join the conversation at any time without worry of spoilers. A quick reminder about our Patreon. If you like what we're doing and want to support us directly, check us out at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Members get ad-free versions, early access, and more. Of course, you can always get our ad-supported podcast on our Lorehounds feed by searching for us on your podcast application of choice. Lastly, we're going to be talking about some mature and sensitive topics on this show, and we'll try to do so respectfully. Any feedback is always welcomed at whitelotus at thelorehounds.com. All right, David, why don't we head into the hotel lobby before we start our recap? Let's fun. (laughs) So what did you think of the episode? Well, I didn't tell you, David, but we have to stay overnight on this podcast. (laughs) Uh, I booked us a palazzo and we'll be going about 12 hours on this episode. All right. Anyway, what'd you think? I thought it was a great episode. Uh, I, I think last episode I said... It was not as good as episode one, and this episode, I feel like it was right back and even better than episode one. Uh, The drama was back from season one, and the cracks are starting to show in these personalities in such a wonderful way. It is so funny. It is heartbreaking at times, hilarious at other times. It's exactly what I wanted from The White Lotus. What do you think, David? Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Uh, I really feel like I'm watching White Lotus now. And, um, you know, as much as I'm, you know, play setting episodes are necessary and important. And I think one of the things that Andor is teaching me is, is that when you have a showrunner that you have developed, who has developed credibility within your own estimation, you know, allow them to tell the story that they want to tell you and let them take you where they're going to take you. And I finally feel like Mike White is 
beginning to take, we're like starting to see, you know, the interesting things that he wants to show us on this, uh, on this journey. And uh, I think we're really starting to get into his vision for this season of television. Largely, not largely, but partly, I think they are on point with their moody scene transitions again. Mm-hmm. The, the audio design, the sound design this episode was amazing. Uh, I was listening to it with um, headphones, and there was some really trippy stuff going on with panning back and forth of some you know, voices and the music. It was, it was really good. So I, I feel like he's getting me into the tone. He's getting me into the mood of what he wants to say and how he wants to deliver those messages. David, you went almost five minutes into the podcast before saying Andor. <laughs> I was resist. I was holding back. I was really, really holding myself back. It was hard. Yeah, no, it was a really great episode. I'm glad you liked it too. I'm excited to get into it. So why don't we set the stage with some of our quote unquote lore, real world lore this time. Mm. So you have some thoughts on the Testa de Moro. Yeah, I did a little bit of research. There's not a lot to be found out there. So what I'm uh, presenting here is really just regurgitation uh, on some basic internet research. And I haven't been able to talk to anybody who's been able to give me like what the the real cultural significance or meaning of these porcelain head statues are. I think they are just what they are. They're an interesting art form that uh, arose in Sicily at a particular time from this particular story and then have just become a local fixture, a local phenomenon. Uh, a piece of interesting art, you know, part of that local color that you really want to see when you go to interesting, you know, other other destinations around the world. Mm. So, Testo di Moro literally means head of the Moor, or the Moor's head. And Moors being a, an exonym used in the Middle Ages by Christian Europeans to refer to the followers to the followers of Islam from the Maghreb and the larger North African region. So, the story basically revolves around exactly what Rocco told the foursome at the beginning of the season in episode one, which is that there was a woman who was seduced by a wealthy merchant, and when she found out that he was going to go home to his family, she cut his head off and used it as a planter <laughs> on her balcony. As one would. As one would. And there's all kinds of cultural um, uh, nuances to this about women being able to be free to move around the city and balconies and how balconies were used to um, to look out onto the world, but also to be seen. There, um, uh, She apparently filled his head with uh, basil, which is a symbolic of passion, I guess. And anyway, the, the, her basil plants like took off and got really lush and big, as they might, I guess. And then apparently other people in her neighborhood and in Palermo were jealous. And so they started making uh, these ceramic heads as well. And this happens apparently coincides at a time when uh, ceramics were being introduced to uh, Sicily by Moorish influences and and Moorish uh, um, commercialism, mercantilism. And so it was sort of one of those things where, well, here's this interesting fable story legend we don't really know 
coinciding with uh, um, something real world happening in terms of art and development and and uh, mercantile, you know, and business. And uh, so they've just become a fixture. And uh, I think artists play with the designs and do all kinds of interesting different things. And so it's just a fixture of the culture and the art of Sicily. Very cool. I heard on an interview, uh, I don't recall where, I believe it was on one of the New Yorker podcasts with Mike White, where he said that they went to Sicily and saw the Testa di Moro. And that's when, while, while they were location scouting, they decided to use it as a set piece for the show and use it as a central theme for the show. Right, exactly. So that's pretty cool. I do. And I, I, I think it's cool too. And I think I, I, I really enjoy that kind of stuff, especially when you have a showrunner who is on set, he's, he's writing and directing this thing. And so he's able to make those creative choices real time and incorporate that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the, the story of the Testo de Moro has to do with um, uh, a woman's honor, um, uh, infidelity, murder. So like all these great themes, great themes, you know, whatever, they're all these rich themes that Mike White is playing with in this season of television. And so I think it's really cool that he's able to grab a hold of that and, and weave it into the story. Right, exactly. Well, thank you for bringing in that, that lore. We're, we're still back. We're back with the lore. Um, I have something, uh, another Greek myth brought to me by my wife again. <laughs> doing yeoman's work for us here. Doing the heavy lifting on the Greek mythology this season. So shout out to her. Honorary lorehound uh, designation for her. Yes, yes. Uh, I, she was again invited on the podcast, and she again said, you tell them. And <laughs> so here I am telling you. So she brought in uh, the myth of Daphne and Apollo. Uh-huh. And, you know, Daphne, name used in the show, that's a character. Yep. So that's pretty clear. Uh, the story of Daphne and Apollo is one of a maiden who wished to stay a virgin. And who was pursued by the god of music, Apollo. Right. And he kept pursuing her and pursuing her, and she kept rejecting his advances, and she knew he was going to catch her eventually. So she begged Zeus to turn her into a tree so that he could not basically assault her. Right. And Zeus did that. And that's the end of her story. She's okay. just a tree. <laughs> She's after just a that. tree. All right. She's just a tree. <laughs> so she basically like turns herself into like a like an inanimate object. But then here's the other sticking point is yeah. what is Apollo's instrument? Uh I don't know. The lyre? It is the harp. The harp. Okay. Harper. Uh-huh. Okay. Is he playing with Harper now? Because he's gotten bored of Daphne, who's become a tree. So Cameron being our Apollo. Correct. But is Cameron really a tree? Hmm. Daphne? Because as we learn in, is, yeah, sorry, is Daphne really a tree? Because I think in this episode, we learned that there's a lot more going on with Harper than we would have thought it, at, at first glance. Yeah, and they could be bending the myth, and they could just like the name because it's tied to a myth. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and in the end, we could learn that, like, maybe she has closed herself off emotionally from being able to deal with these issues deal with the infidelity like she does seem pretty detached from this cheating thing right she only talks right. about it when she's high and alone with somebody right and she talks about it in a way where she goes i'm not a victim so we can get into that deeper later but i think that there is something to this sort of losing a part of yourself losing your autonomy and mm -hmm. losing your 
losing your personality right to remain safe and closing yourself off to remain safe right it's interesting i think in all of this with with the swan and zeus and uh, i think even though in some of the ways that um they're coding the characters like we were looking at like oh is is albie really not a nice guy is does ethan have some darker aspects to his uh character they're playing they mike white and the the editors in the show you know everybody on this production are are playing with how the characters are being presented to us in any given episode and so we're they're, as they're twisting and turning them they're like a little crystal, a little fast, and we're catching little different facets as the light sort of is glinting off of them. And we're seeing these little different things. And maybe, you know, maybe Ethan isn't an incel, and maybe Albie really is a nice guy. But as we're looking and examining these things, all of these thoughts are occurring to us, and, and it, it's having us question, examine, look further, have conversations. And in wrapping the whole thing up and around with Testo de Moro and, and uh, um, the Greek mythology and, and all of these other things, he's just giving us a feast to enjoy and think about and, and you know, have conversations around. And it's, it's a much richer production than I was, had a sense of uh, even in the first episode of the second season. Right. Well, very cool stuff. I think we've gone deep into some of the background lore. Now, why don't we go into some specifics? So, David, do you want to give us some of these character breakdowns like we did last time? Yeah, this was a tough episode, too, to do the breakdown on because there's a <laughs> lot of uh, characters are moving around a little bit more. And we've got a lot of we got a lot of density in the scenes, too. A lot happening in shorter scenes all, all work together. So I've uh, broken it down again in the same way through character arcs. And first, we're going to start with the two arcs that are um, more, well, either uh, either less in content or, or more woven through and then are sort of less overall in their own way. So we start with Valentina. And we see Valentina walking to work, and she tries to have a, her morning coffee in peace, but is hit on by another patron. John. Patreon. Patreon. Are you putting a subtle ad here? <laughs> <laughs> on his run, Ethan passes Valentina on the street. So I think they're doing two things here with Valentina. I think one, they're starting to give us more view into what it's like for her, you know, just her daily, you know, daily life. And to me, that signals that they're, they're setting something up. Something is going to come to pass. And I certainly think that, you know, they've given us Ethan on his run again, and we've seen Ethan encounter several other characters on his run at different times. So they're definitely laying some groundwork uh, there, regardless of, of whatever actually happens. Right. But then going back to this first point, which is we're getting Valentina, so what's going to happen with her? We know she doesn't die. Uh, but somehow there's going to be some uh, pivotal element um, to happen with her yet. But I think on the flip side of it, too, though, is, is that we're starting to get into these conversations that Mike is seeding about the male gaze and about what it's like to be a woman and having to deal with toxic male behavior. Look, she's just trying to get a coffee before she goes to work and she's getting right. hit on by this guy. 
And like how how much of that bullshit do women have to deal with on a daily basis? Right. You know, and I think he's he's giving us right there, like right in our face. Boom. Here, she's just trying to go to work. Right. Right. And also, like, if it were like one guy, that might not have been so bothersome. But it seems like she like he didn't say anything overtly rude. Right. But every single day right. this is happening to her and she's just right. so sick of it. And this guy is going to get, <laughs> this guy is going to get an earful. It's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> She's going to become known as the lady who yells at you if you talk to her. Which, you know what? It seems like that's what she wants. Right. So later we see Valentina on her lunch break sitting outside the hotel and she's taking care of some stray kittens. I wasn't really sure what to make of this scene. I think it was just more of us showing, you know, just humanizing her. Yeah. Well, because she's been an asshole to like everybody right. up to this point. Right. Um, and I'm not talking about the scene this morning. You know, that guy kind of deserved it. Right. But the other the other people like, oh, you're old. Oh, you know, the, right. you know, all these rude comments <laughs> to the guests. Like she's just kind of right. awful to people. And so, yeah, it's it, we needed something to make her not a totally just villainous person. <laughs> and what better way than to, you know, show us kittens. Right. No, yeah, right. no, it worked on me. Worked on me. I started to like Valentina more this episode. And I, I like how Mike White does that. I mean, that's something that we talked about in Game of Thrones back in the day mm-hmm. was the way that they could make you root for a character that you didn't previously. And Mike White's doing that over just a couple episodes, which is great. Yeah. And then we get the sort of the cherry on top of that. This whole movement is that um, Isabella, one of the uh, hotel employees, as she's leaving for the day, tells Valentina that she admires Valentina and she hopes to be like her one day. I don't think she knew what to do about this, Valentina. Not at all. She was taken totally off guard. I think she was panicking inside. She's like, what do yeah. I do? What do I do? I don't know how to take a compliment. Everybody thinks I'm a jerk. You're, you're a good worker. You talk to Rocco too much, but, you know, otherwise you're okay. Right. She can't even <laughs> give like a crazy. full comment, but <laughs> no. compliment. It was hilarious. I loved it. And and the actress that, that you know, she, her her delivery of this was just, sublime you could see the machinery like you could see the gears crashing you know clashing behind her face like oh what do i do with this this is like really uncomfortable can i also say the way that valentina power walks in heels mm, is yes. just so impressive on cobblestone gosh I, yeah I, I just i couldn't believe it i would have fallen over about five times in that scene <laughs> that's right that's right but yeah no it was a really nice scene with isabella um, I, I was not expecting it. I kind of wonder what they're doing with that mm-hmm. uh, because it, it seemed almost out of place for a minute. Yep. But I guess that, it, it felt out of place for Valentina. So that's OK. It made us feel how she felt. And I think this is, uh, again, all going to that other point that I was making is that they're they're He's he's building a, he, some kindling. He's putting some kindling on a fire that he's about to light. Right. And I'm 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 here for it. I, I, I'm really excited to see what he does because I'm really enjoying Valentina. Yeah. Yeah. Again, very different character from Armand. I'm glad that they didn't recreate the goofy, you know, manic concierge like they did, uh, you know, with Armand. So yeah. I'm, I'm really glad to see that Mike White has branched out. It might be the same show, but it's not the same cast at all. Yeah, exactly. All right, we'll hop over to Mia and Lucia. They've just got a couple of scenes on their own. Otherwise, they're embedded into a couple of other storylines. Uh, Lucia and Mia go shopping with the proceeds from their night with Dominic, and Mia offers to buy Lucia a dress. Well, she offers to buy her a dress with money she didn't earn. Right. <laughs> well, she participated, you know, in, in, in the revelries. That's true. That's true. I just think it was funny how she's like, oh, yeah, half's mine. And, right, uh, exactly. And, and Lucia's, 
going, excuse me? You're like, hey, are we... You didn't do the work. Um, very, very charming exchange because I don't think either one of them was very like, you know, dug into their position. It was just kind of good friend, good fun between friends. I think, too, it's interesting that we see Mia is now she's like, oh, you know, some money. Like, I got some money now. Like, you right. Know, this is this. And so suddenly she's going she's moving off of and we when we see this in effect much later on in the episode. She's moving off of the romantic who's saving herself for her boyfriend, you know, who's not her boyfriend anymore, but where, you know, she's, she's, she had been preserving herself in, in different ways. And now she's um, becoming a little bit more Bacchanalian as uh, she hangs out with Lucia a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I think that Lucia knows what she's doing. She knows the kind of people she does it with. And she's, at least in her mind, come up with some kind of work-life balance with this. Mm -hmm. I don't think that Mia has thought this through. Which gives my prediction that Mia may be one of the victims by the end of the season uh, a little bit more weight. Right. In my mind, no, at I'm, least. <laughs> I, think that, I think that you're on to something, David. Yeah. All right. So at the hotel bar uh, at dinner... Dominic tells Lucia that he needs to cancel the rest of their plans, and then Lucia works to find a new client. The piano player propositions Mia, and then Cameron invites Lucia and Mia to their table, and they agree to, let's fun. <laughs> let's fun. Well, the piano player, interesting character, because I think that Mia is in a way charmed by him, but I think she's more charmed by him with his art. Yeah. Than as a person, because he right. is a little slimy as a person. A little bit. Oh, my God. No, yeah, quite, <laughs> quite slime ball. Totally. And um, for a second there, I thought she was going to acquiesce. And I'm still not sure that she won't go along with his proposition, uh, you know, later on down the road, because she does want to get somewhere and he's offering a path to her. Albeit a very vague path. Oh, I know people. I can help you with things. Like, that's pretty pretty vague there, my guy. I know it's a five-star hotel, but I don't think that the hotel lounge pianist is in the same market as what Mia wants to do. Like, pop music, it seems like. Yeah. And, that, you know, it's not that it's a worse job. Like, I'm no, no shade to people who perform for dinners. But it's just a different field, you know? Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like you wouldn't go and ask a wedding band to network you to, you know, a record label. It's just a mm -hmm. different thing. Like, you can right. make a ton of money doing that, and you can make a ton of money working at hotels, but uh, it, it's just not the same kind of connection. So that's why he's being intentionally vague, I think. I don't think he really has the kind of connections that Mia wants. No, and it, if he's connected like that, what's he doing at that hotel? Right. Yeah. Uh, not that it's not a nice hotel. What did you make of uh, Dominic canceling the plans? I mean, we're going to get into Dominic a lot more later on. But uh, do you think he should have paid her out for the week? Well, when you when you have a contract like that, it's not exactly legally enforceable. <laughs> you can't you can't enforce a sex work contract. No, I didn't think he could he could enforce it. But I mean, it would have been that like if he had said here, here's here's you know. Here's for the week. I'm really sorry. Like, I would have felt a lot better about Dominic, but um, yeah. 
And I get what he's trying to do. And again, we'll talk about him a little bit more later. But um, I thought it was a little cheap that he just sort of uh, left her hanging there. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was super cheap about it. But you know what? I guess he, in his mind, he didn't get the service. He's not paying for it. And, yeah. Uh, I mean, that, there's, a, there's that point. I don't know if at the beginning of the week he had planned to have her for the week or if he was basically trying her out for a night and then he told her, Yo, you're going to be my girlfriend for the week. Yeah, well, that's the that that that's what I recall from uh, Lucia saying, like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna be, um, you know, his girlfriend for the week." So yeah, I think she said something like, "She he likes me, so I'm right. I'm gonna be with him for the week." So right, yeah. So I guess she wasn't counting on it all week uh, until after that. So after like the night before. So I don't feel that badly about it. Like he, it wasn't like a long standing thing. Although I'm sure she did spend more money than she would have if she thought it was only two nights. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You. You. Um she was living a little bit large. Yeah. Speaking of which, we can act, we're actually going to kind of like reverse uh, back around here because um, when we get into the DeGrasso and Portia storyline, the first thing we do is we wake up with Dominic after his night with uh, Lucia and Mia, and he pays them out. And then they are seen by Bert in the hallway as they leave his room. And then uh, Bert has a little chuckle to himself as he passes his son's door. F. Abraham Murray. Yeah is so funny with his facial expressions. <laughs> Very expressive actor. Yeah. You, you could tell everything you needed from that. I didn't even need him chuckling. Yeah, right, exactly. He was just like, just a little eyebrow raise, just a little, uh-huh, yeah, I, I know what's going on here. Yep. So then uh, Albie joins Portia for breakfast and tries to communicate to Portia his feelings for her. And then he, Portia boxes Albie into the nice guy zone. So first of all, I don't think Portia knows what she wants. I think uh -huh. that she's having basically an emotional breakdown right here. Right. And Albie is not the right person to help her through that. And I think that if you don't know what you want, you can't be upset that nobody's giving it to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I don't think anybody could figure out what she wants from that. I mean, she needs to be clear about what she wants so that somebody can do it, you know, in a fully consenting way and walking in with eyes open. So Portia delivers a line about the free buffet breakfast and how it's a sort of a conundrum. And I think that line is doing some double duty here. I think there is this aspect that Mike is setting up, which is how can you be a, a nice guy without being an a-hole? Uh, how can you sweep somebody on their, off their feet? but be consensual and ethical about it, right? So there's a conundrum there that, like, we're still figuring this out in some ways, I think. And then I think there's a conundrum, too, which is um, she's wrestling with what you were just pointing out, which is she's not clear, and she's in a conundrum. So it's not necessarily about the free breakfast part of it here, but it's just that she is in the middle of a conundrum. She does not know how to, to deal with this. And we're going to get into some more conversation here about that. In fact, why don't we just slide into the next scene, which is Albie takes some selfies of himself, and then Portia continues to lament about her situation and asks the question, is everything boring? Is everything boring? You know what, Portia, you got to just get off Tumblr, because <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. Yeah. Like, you, you've seen all these things because you're on social media so much and you are oversaturated with stimulation yeah. to the point where 
everything is boring because nothing can live up to the Instagram perfection that you're seeing. Right. And the most telling part of this scene Uh is that when Albie says, throw your phone into the ocean, she goes, hmm. You know, she's she's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that in her head. Right. <laughs> she's dependent on her phone. It's 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 ruining her life and she's dependent on it. I think Mike's saying something with that too. Absolutely. I think I think this is a a a key thesis that he's playing with, especially with the these two characters who are in the age, you know, the generational age set that they are in, that this the impact of the mobile phone and social media and always on and always this always connected stuff. And how that is really messed with her head. And, you know, you see Albie take a couple of selfies. He's like, click, click. And he's like, he moves on. Where she's like, uh, and she's stuck in it. And um, I think he's really putting his finger on something right there, which is how are we going to deal with the impact of social media and always on uh, access? Uh, with our psychology and our lives and our sense of enjoyment and fulfillment uh, and just going out in the world and seeing and being in the world and not just, you know, taking pictures of our food and of us on a, you know, cool uh, hotel balcony. Yeah. You know, when I've traveled, especially like in the UK, when I was sightseeing, I tried to take as few pictures as possible Mm -hmm. while still having enough to remember because it's really just, Something that kind of ruins the experience if you have to interrupt to take a selfie every 10 minutes. Right. (laughs) And I don't think that Portia ever learned that lesson. I don't think that she ever learned to put her phone away. She Mm -hmm. never developed a healthy relationship with it. And, you know, this isn't like, oh, smartphones are ruining the world thing. It's kind of like the way we use smartphones is starting to ruin our mental health, I think. Well, I don't think Mike White is the. I don't think what he did in season one or in season what he's doing in season two is he's not finger wagging. He's just pointing these things out. Right. He's 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 sketching them out. He's giving us the outlines of them, and then allowing us to sort of react and to think about them. And I I think in in season one though, like what gave me some hope coming out of season one was Quinn's story, the son of uh, of the the big family. Right. When he did lose his phone, like when his phone was denied to him, and he started to like come down off that digital detox. And then, you know, he started to encounter life and found that life was going on and it was out there and all he had to do was show up. Uh, and then suddenly he's included and he's like vibrant and alive and, you know, he's going to go on, the, on these big paddles and kinds of stuff. So, I mean, at least he gave us a pathway out of that conundrum. Uh, so we weren't stuck in a in a hopeless place uh, at, while at the same time sketching out of those um, these very real problems that we're dealing with. And I love the fact, I, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but Albie says, we'll throw it in the ocean. And that's exactly where Quinn found his freedom in season one was the on the ocean. So I, I just kind of like that little parallel. Yeah. Mike's got some things to say about cell phones. Let's see if they play out. Bert confronts Dominic about his nocturnal activities and then goes in for some cannolis. Uh, later, Bert reveals his plans to take the group to uh, the villa where the Godfather was filmed. Portia agrees to go with them. Please don't say anything to Albie. Would you just look at these cannolis? <laughs> <laughs> what a perfect response. And again, yeah. F. Murray Abraham, perfect delivery. 
So then we'll jump to the scene at the villa where we see scenes from the first Godfather movie playing in the gift shop. While Bert explains the famous scenes from the quote-unquote best American movie ever made, Albie disputes his grandfather's estimation, and they debate the nature of masculinity in the modern age. Portia is recalled to the hotel by Tanya, and Albie is embarrassed by his progenitors. This was a big scene. I have a lot to say about this scene. Let's go. Okay, first of all, fun one. You brought up The Godfather last time, Parallels. And now they're literally putting scenes from The Godfather in here. <laughs> literally, literally. I couldn't believe it. I, was, I, I thought of you when I saw that scene. I said, David's going to love this. They're, they're putting it in. Good. So now I don't have to watch the movie because I got the gist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, I think that there is also something to be said about the reaction of, mm-hmm. of them to The Godfather, which is... These two young people can't enjoy this movie because they are too obsessed with finding the problems in it. Uh-huh. And instead of just saying, hey, we understand the problems with it, and then like having an informed conversation about it, but enjoying it, they're like, no, that movie is terrible. Like they don't say that exactly, but they basically imply that the movie's a relic of a lost era and, right. and terrible. And they just can't enjoy it. And I think that they're I think Mike is saying something about like, okay, we don't have to lose everything in the past to move forward. I, uh, okay, Andor, uh, <laughs> you know how we, we love to hate Dedra, right? Like, she's like, oh, this, she's this great underdog character, and now she's, like, doing really horrible things for the Empire. Not dissimilar, Albie is saying right stuff, but he's just doing it in such a way that I just want to, like, punch him in the face. It's like, okay, yeah, you're right, but the way that you're, you know, how you're being, he's being righteous, I think, and that just really. It's very performative and it's very righteous and it's self. It's very self-referential uh, and and I love F. Murray Br- Abraham's uh, line there, Bert's line there, which is like, "Do we embarrass you?" And he, yeah, he he can't even say it. He can't even he can't even own up to that. So there's some kind of dishonesty going on in here, even though he's saying the right things and trying to think the right thoughts in some way. He says, "I am." A relic of an era you'd like to forget. Yeah. <laughs> that was a great line, first yeah. of all. Yeah. And it's kind of true. I mean, that's, that's you know, I think it's positive social changes we're going through right now. Uh, right. You know, across the board. But it is true that we need to figure out what to do with the people who did not undergo that yet. Mm-hmm. And we need to figure out how to not just, like, totally throw everyone under the bus when they're learning. Right. Right. Now, at the same time, Bert's not learning. No. Maybe we could say that Dominic is starting to learn, but Bert's not even interested in the conversation. So he is kind of a relic of a, an era we'd like to forget. He is, but rather than finger wagging and uh, sort of preening himself in his, you know, self righteous, you know, feather dress, you know, have a constructive engagement, have a conversation with your grandfather. And it may not be something that is um, resolved in a single conversation. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, multiple conversations over time to actually look and think about those things. But instead, Albie just sort of, you know, um, parrots whatever he learned at that. <laughs> what did Bert say something about his university? You know, all the money that you, <laughs> all the money that you spent at that university. I think it's an important conversation. And again, going back to this thing of Mike White 
you know, putting, pointing these things out and not necessarily giving us an answer, but pointing them out so that we can actually look at them and, and try to wrestle with them. Yeah, and it really just was something where I don't think he would have ever said any of those things if Portia wasn't sitting next to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yes. it just felt very performative. Really, yeah. Yeah. It just felt really performative, really inauthentic, I guess. Yeah. And not that he doesn't agree with these things on an intellectual level, but I don't, I didn't get the sense that he believed them, mm-hmm. quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that he is like, hey, here are the talking points right now that I need to recite to be on the right side of things. And I have a Gen Z person next to me, so I better say them. Right. A Gen Z person that I'm I'm sweet on and I, I want to have them continue to be sweet on me. So I got to say the right things. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't I didn't love Albie in the scene. Now, that that being said, I didn't get anything. I've seen some talk about how he's like scaring people with the way he's talking in this uh-huh. episode. I didn't get that at all. And you know what? That might be because I'm a white man who's uh, uh, slightly tall. I I. You know, nobody knows what I look like because I'm John Lorehound. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm a, I'm a tall white man, okay? And obviously, I'm not going to feel as threatened as someone like Portia when she's next to him, who's like half his height. But like, I didn't get any anything problematic about... I, I didn't get anything problematic about what he was saying. I think that my issue with him was the performative nature of it. Whereas the thing, that, the only thing that he said so far that made me deeply uncomfortable was the nice guy thing. And Mm -hmm. so far, he has not shown himself to have the ideology of the, quote, nice guys. Right. So I'm still waiting for that ball to drop. Yeah, well, as we kind of pointed out earlier, too, um, they're they're giving us a lot of different facets for the characters. And so, you know, we see the nice guy, and then the crystal keeps turning, and then we see, well, well, maybe is there something darker here? And then it spins around. Nope, we're still seeing nice guy. So... There's a because last episode I came out completely convinced that Albie was uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing Um, and not the good kind of wolf. But, you know, like like somebody who's mildly like maybe a little bit dangerous. And in this one, it's like, no, he's just like a kid. He's literally just a kid. Right. Yeah, I just didn't. I I don't get any threatening vibes from Albie. In fact, I think exactly. I think he's boring. I think that's the issue. I think that's exactly (laughs) what Mike White is telling us, is that this is a boring person. Right. I did love, uh, at the end of the scene when Portia's on the phone with Tanya, that how she's standing right next to the car um, that gets blown up in the the Godfather movie. Uh, I just, it was a great visual reference. uh, And not that, I I think it's one of those decisions that they made probably in the moment on the set, uh, but it was just, it Mm -hmm. was just kind of fun. Yeah. Fun stuff. Why don't we move on to the next thing? Back at the hotel, Dominic tries to convince his son that he's a feminist. Albie <laughs> implores his dad to change. Oh, boy. Okay, so this is what was going through my head in this scene was, uh-huh. what, what Mike is trying to tell us here is that the Gen Xers, Dominic's generation, these like middle-aged people right now, are sort hey. of caught between, you know what, I'm not saying <laughs> you, just most. So Dominic is caught between two generations in a way where he knows the right things to say. Yeah. At least some of them. Yep. But he can't convince himself to act right. Right. Right? So we have these three stages of people trying to be upstanding gentlemen, I guess. Mm-hmm. Whereas Bert thinks you do that by flattering each woman. 
when really that amounts to harassment. And then Dominic is like, well, I facially treat women right, and I have a wife who is a strong woman, but I go and cheat on her all the time, and I pay women for sex all the time. Right. And and then also he says a weird comment in this, like, oh, it's in our blood to to do something. Uh, it's It's not great. He doesn't always say the right thing, so I don't want to give him full credit on that either. Right. Whereas you have Junior, you have Albie saying basically the right thing as far as his talking points and being respectful of boundaries, it seems like, with Portia. Right. But not being able to really find a connection, right? right. It's, it's, it's still awkward. I think it's tough. I think that's what Mike is saying. I think it's tough. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I don't know because I've been married for a while. But I think it's tough for people who are in the dating scene now to figure out, okay, we just had a big talk about what it means to be fully consenting and what it means to treat women the right way in these encounters. And I need to figure out now how to have both an interesting personality and be passionate enough without Mm -hmm. disrespecting boundaries and without disrespecting women. And that's a tough balance, you know? I mean, it's it's because she wants him to be, quote, aggressive. I don't know what that means, and it, clearly Albie doesn't either. Right. Uh, but he he can be not boring, but still be respectful. And right. I think he has not figured out how to strike that balance. And I think it is tough, and I think that's what Mike is saying. He's not, yeah. he's not giving an answer. He's saying it's tough. Yeah. I think here in this particular scene, too, we see um, Dominic struggling with his situation where um you know not to be overly sympathetic to him but to to understand that you know understand his humanity in this moment which is he's got a problem it's a self-destructive problem and then when you can see on Albie's face that there's real harm done to Albie to his sister to their mother that you know Dominic hasn't done the work yet to actually address that. Right. He's oriented to it. He understands that that exists and he understands that there's a pathway for that. But he's not yet there in terms of uh really willing to take on uh and understand the pain that he's caused. Cuz even though Albie doesn't let it on very much, there is a there is some deep pain there on Albie's side. Which I think is what he's also reacting to is like, I don't want to be my dad and I don't want to be my granddad. Right. Now, I'm just going to say this now. Dominic is not a sex addict. Uh, I, heard an, I heard an interesting uh, interview with uh, Michael Imperioli about that and about this, this issue of um, addiction versus uh, other behaviors that are, are self-destructive. And it's like he's... I think he's he's just right there on the edge. He's got a whole bunch of patterns of of behavior, but yeah, like an, an actual true diagnosis. You know, I I think I don't think he. Go, I, I'm agreeing with you. I don't think he goes all the way over into a true clinical diagnosis. A sex addict can't send the sex worker home and then be fine with it, right? You know, I just right. don't think that that's a thing uh, at his level that he's trying to say, where he's you know all the time cheating on his wife. It's a bad habit. That's what he has. He has a self-destructive bad habit. 
Right. And I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm totally in the, he is not a sex addict camp. All right. So let's uh, jump forward in time and we uh, rejoin Portia sitting by the pool after dinner. And uh, she's uh, attracted to a hot Englishman who goes for a late night swim. Albie joins her and attempts to seduce her, but she begs off and he walks her to her room. I think she got the ick from that guy at some point with the, the pool guy? sensitive nips. No, she was. No, 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 no. She was she was ready for a conversation with him. I think she was at first when she first saw him. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I got the ick when I heard him go. I have sensitive nips, like like <laughs> in, a, in like a high voice, like I have sensitive nips. It's uh boy, yeah, it wasn't great. Um, but yes, no, I think she was attracted to him at least at first. I think that had Albie not been there, this would have been the kind of guy she was looking for. Oh, hundred percent. And that's that's completely the storyline that that Mike is is weaving here. And you could kind of see when when Albie shows up, she's like. Uh oh, <laughs> she's like not this. <laughs> All right, we uh, jump forward in time again a little bit. Uh, we have Dominic sitting at the bar, noticing all the women around him, and then he returns to his room alone. Well, good on Dominic for not cheating on his wife one night. Yeah, let's see how long he goes now. That's all I'll say. And you know, if if he's serious about what he was saying to Albie, like. He needs to get professional help, right? He's not going to be able to do this on his own. It's it's a it's a it's hard. You know, regardless of diagnosis or no diagnosis, what he's going to be dealing with is going to be difficult. And and at least in this moment, he's taken a step. You know, his impulse to notice what his reactions are, and then to go, okay, I'm going to choose a different path for myself tonight. That's at least a first step. Sure. I just hope he keeps taking steps for Laura Dern's sake. <laughs> for Laura, exactly. All right, David, why don't we take a break? And when we get back, we will get to the foursome. And we're back. David, can you give us the beginning of the foursomes plot line? So Harper waits for Ethan after his run, hoping to catch him in a mood. He ignores her advances. Harper then promises to change and to be more friendly, and Ethan cautions her to not overdo it. I have never seen Aubrey Plaza smile so much. <laughs> I know that you said you weren't that familiar with her before no, this, but yeah, yeah. she always plays deadpan, uh-huh. uh, you know, sarcastic, just frowning the whole time, or like... So, you know, smirking, if anything, but never like full teeth smile. Right. And this is the most I've ever seen it. And it was hilarious because, first of all, it helps that she's not known for that because it was so jarring if you're familiar with her. Um, But just even if you're only watching the show, like they are the fakest smiles I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. (laughs) What's up with Ethan? Like he completely blows by her and doesn't even acknowledge her in in any way when she's clearly signaling uh i i'm you know for as honest as they are in their relationship there there's definitely some issues going on here they're honest but he certainly keeps his feelings inside yeah like he's factually honest he'll tell her what happened at dinner he won't tell her how much he liked the food right oh that's an yeah that's a good way to put it yep that's a good way to put it but this third rejection that we've seen already, 
Yeah. Is just really brutal. It was bad. It was real bad. As soon as he did that, my wife and I audibly gasped <laughs> when he walked to the shower. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, no, Aubrey Plaza did this whole thing. She put on lingerie. She was ready to go. And he just blew past her. And she changed her habit yep. to accommodate him, yep. which is good on her because that is how you do a healthy relationship, as you say. Hey, you know what? We have this conflict. One of us needs to compromise at least. So I'll be the one to do it first. Right. Good on her. And then she just kind of shakes it off and, uh, you know, talks about how she's going to change for the day. So, like, that took something for her to swallow that. Right. I mean, it was certainly from a place of insecurity from the night before. Yeah. From the dinner the night before, of course, where, you know, it just seemed like they were a very sad couple from what they were saying. Quick segue on the night before and then this morning. I do really like the structure of this season so that each day starts with the dawn and ends with the the dinner and that we have you know they're here for a week so we have seven episodes so i I really like that they've locked in on this format i think it it sets a nice pace and a flow to the whole season because that we know that we're going somewhere we're no we know that as the days progress you know, every episode is a day and the, and, and the plot is progressing day by day. Right. And it's one more episode than last season. Yeah. And I think that that was partly because, you know, what you're saying, but also partly because he knew he, knew he needed more setup with these characters. Right. And so we got two episodes of setup, whereas now the drama is really going. Right. All right. So Ethan and Harper join Daphne and Cameron for breakfast. Cameron and Daphne notice Harper's new look and sunny disposition. Cameron and Daphne spar over plans for the day. The gals decide to go visit the town of Noto while the guys will go jet skiing. Hey, I'll do anything while I'm wearing my Italy headband. (laughs) She's looking good there. That's a great outfit. I like it even better when she brings that down and and has it around her neck. Very classy. (laughs) Yeah, very, very cool. This scene was really great because you start to see the cracks in Cameron and Daphne. Yeah, they this is the first time that we actually see them uh, with any kind of strife. They were very performative for the first couple of days. Yeah. But at the same time, the show was telling me that they were in private having a great time, too. So, yeah, it was uh, it was it was kind of surprising because I thought that Mike was saying, hey, you know, this guy is kind of a jerk, but he also is a loving husband. And he just ripped that whole they ripped that rug out from underneath us this episode. Well, put a jet ski in front of a guy like that, and <laughs> you're, you're in for something. So how surprised do you think Harper was that Daphne was like, hey, why don't you come with me? I couldn't, I, like, if, if, if I were in that foursome and we were talking, and the talk, oh, well, I want to go to this town, like, I would have been, I'm the kind of person that would be like, oh, okay, cool, well, you guys go jet skiing, we'll go to the town, and it'll be great. Like that, it just a, it occurs to me as a natural thing to do. The fact that Daphne actually had to invite her explicitly in that way seemed awkward to me, but that may be just me. That may be just the kind of person I am. Yeah. I mean, I, we all have different tolerances for how much we would like to spend time with people we don't know uh, that well. But Harper, I think, just was like, well, I'll put on a sunny face and Ethan will see how well I'm doing all day. And then. All of a sudden, Daphne takes her away from Ethan. Oh, uh, yeah. But she's getting closer to Daphne at the same time. So, like, that's, that's good. 
And I liked their chemistry this episode. Yeah, totally. Do Are you suspicious at all of Daphne in terms of, in, of this whole setup of them doing the uh, split day jet ski versus um, going to Noto? No, I believe Daphne when she says she's punishing uh, <laughs> no, I, I believe her. There was fire in her eyes there. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Um, Harper and Daphne say their goodbyes and get into the car to go to Noto. Daphne has a large bag. Ethan and Cameron <laughs> say hi to Mia and Lucia as they enter the hotel. I was like, when, when Daphne got in the car and put that bag there, I was like, that's weird. And then, of course, we learn the reason why. Right, right. It was weird, and it's kind of interesting that Harper didn't pick up on it because, I mean, I guess she doesn't know Daphne well, but it was sus because you're going on a day trip and you have a large bag. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a nice way, it's a nice uh, moment in television that, you know, he's he's seeding us with something that is going to connect later, and then we get to feel smart, like, oh yeah, she had a big bag because she packed all her stuff. Like, that's just like little... Uh, nuggets like that in, in TV production are, are nice, and I, I like that kind of stuff. Right. Makes me feel smart as a, as a fan viewer. Well, you deserve it. You are a lore hound. <laughs> it's true. Daphne and Harper arrive at the villa that Daphne has already rented for them. They go for a swim and talk about their respective relationships. Daphne calls Cameron to tell him that they are spending the night. A lot of spite from Daphne here, mm -hmm. clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, she, I mean, she lays out what she's doing. She's punishing him. Right. Which is really, really petulant. She does it in such a, like, a smiley, giggly way, though. I just loved her deliveries in this pool scene. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, it is emotionally manipulative. She's like, I know what buttons to push, and I'm going to push them. And that yep. wasn't great. And that's the first. But, see, what I didn't like in that scene was Harper sort of coming alive at realizing that there are cracks in their relationship. Mm -hmm. She was really getting a lot of enjoyment out of that, and I did not think that that spoke well of Harper's character. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, I thought she was like, oh, you, you punish him? Like, like, she lit up a little bit at that. Huh. Okay, I didn't, I didn't quite clock that, but that's interesting. I think that, you know, she's just comparing herself to them, and she even said that in the last episode, like, everybody compares right. uh, themselves to other couples, and and I, th I think she's right that, like, in a way, like, we're programmed to constantly, like, measure ourselves to other mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. That's just, like, in our biology, I think. Yeah. But yeah. Harper Harper really got too much joy out of Daphne being like, yeah, I punish him all the time. So I like the fact that we're getting back into the swimming pool for some conversations. <laughs> um, hearkening back to season one again, um, there were some great scenes uh, between uh, Mark and Quinn in the swimming pool as they would sort of float there and have these like deep life conversations. And so I was, uh, I, I felt like, oh, that, that's a cool, you know, uh, you know, again, a little cool connective point back to season one. And I hope to see a little bit more of that. Right. Yeah. No, that was a cool callback. So meanwhile, Cameron gives Ethan a hard time for not tipping him off about the sale of Ethan's company. And then he tries to convince Ethan to invest with him. And then they leave to go jet skiing. Okay, so Cameron's broke, right? Uh, broke? I think he's broke. Uh, I don't know broke. I think, or, or is he whatever finance firm that he's at, like maybe he's got to hustle a little bit, right? Maybe he's getting a little bit thin. Maybe he hasn't had a couple of good deals recently or something. I don't know that they're broke. He was certainly desperate. He was giving off an air of, I need this. Uh-huh. 
he was he was overly jocular about it right he's like oh i'm so psyched for you e like he's like oh yeah it's like i think you protest a little too loudly there my friend like you're 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 being too enthusiastic about it so i think he definitely wants to get his hands on some of ethan's money but i just don't know if i if i'm ready yet to go to the point that oh no they're in in financial dire straits because daphne certainly isn't giving off any of those kinds of vibes well i wonder how much he shares with her on that although it does seem it does seem like she does have access to the money i mean she was able to book that palazzo with no issue yeah we'll see who knows if she just like has the credit cards you know that could be a thing too I think a lot of folks are thinking that this is the aha moment of like why they invited them on um, this uh, vacation. I don't know if I'm there yet with that, but it's certainly I, I certainly agree that Cameron has been thinking about Ethan's money for a while now. And also, can we just comment on the fact that he was just encouraging insider trading? Oh, right. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, we all do. Forgot, it. Like, forgot about that little part. Yeah. What is he doing? It's it, it. I mean, and then later on, he, you know, as he says, everybody commits infidelity, right? Everybody cheats on their spouses. Like, so here is a guy who is okay with using his privilege and status to not only enter into morally gray, ethically and morally gray areas, but just straight up break the law. Insider trading is very illegal. You will go to prison for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk more about Cameron's business ethics later, but I do think that uh-huh. this scene suggested that he's either personally or professionally in financial distress. Okay, cool. Well, let's put a pin in that for sure. Daphne and Harper go shopping in town. Harper has a Hitchcockian experience of being leered at by a large group of men. Daphne and Harper share drinks and have an edible while discussing their relationships to being women themselves and the sad lot of male elephants. So. Really quickly on this scene, as uh, I think you pointed out to me, uh, I think there was a post on Reddit. We had some talk about it in the Discord today. I think there's a great um, Instagram post that somebody was sharing around from HBO that this scene of Harper being leered at by all these men is almost a shot-for-shot scene out of the 1960 Monica Vitti film La Aventura. Oh, you got to do it a little more Italian, man. It's see, the, you the can L, do it a little the bit L more has Italian. to elide into the A, and I hope one, our our one Italian listener will will appreciate. It. You got to go La Ventura. You know, it's a it's it's La Ventura. You got to be really. You, you got to get a little bit of a je in there. I, I haven't yet found my my true Italian spirit. Well, you will by the end of this season. Um. So the La Ventura is a 1960. I'm going to read the wiki article because it's just it, very concise. Uh, just the the header of it. It's a 1960 Italian drama film directed by Michelangelo Antonioni, developed from a story co with some various co-writers. The film is about the disappearance of a young woman during a boating trip in the Mediterranean and the subsequent search for her by her lover and her best friend, Monica Vitti. It was filmed on location in Rome, blah, 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 a bunch of other stuff. But anyway, this is a, a near shot for shot uh, recreation of the same scene. The film La, v- La Ventura is on HBO. Like you could go right now and go watch this movie. Just put in Monica Vitti or La Ventura. I'm not even going to say it again. And if you jump to one hour and 39 minutes, you will get to the scene. So if you want to, I did like a dual screen on my computer and watch them uh, two together. I don't have a context for the scene because the story, I think, is a lot more involved. 
but I, I think it's in the same place. I think they filmed this in the exact same location. So nice callback to the whole Monica VT vibe that Mike has been uh, giving us in this episode or in this season. It's crazy. It's crazy how prolific Peppa Pig has been in the last century. You know, it's uh, no, that's uh, this was super cool, though, to see this happen. And I mean, it was it was it would have been a great shot to begin with. It would have been a great little uh, little transition scene. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it calls back to Monica VT is just perfect. Yeah. And it was Monica Vitti before Monica Vitti was into comedy. So this was, you know, during her more dramatic, very earlier, this is much earlier on in her career when she was doing some more serious stuff. And this film is supposed to be uh, a, like a really great film. It's very highly rated, lots, lots of awards and lots of attention, a lot of critical acclaim for it. So I actually am really interested in watching it. And when the scene started to unfold... At first, I was like, what kind of weird magical realism thing is this? But like, no, it's straight. Like, this, like if th this is a straight up thing, this is not Harper's imagination. She's not, you know, she's not seeing things that aren't there. This is actually what's happening to her in this story. Yeah, I thought this was some kind of like pseudo dream sequence as well to when I, thought, mm -hmm. when I started mm -hmm. it. And by the end of it, I was like, oh, yeah, no, they're just, I think, first of all, they're saying something about men and the culture of this town in sicily this small it seems like it's a small town right mm -hmm. and um i just i i think that they were just showing a continuation of what happened with valentina in the intro i think uh looking at the scene from the 1960 movie it's a lot more disturbing as well because the shot goes on for much longer and there's a lot more silentness going on around it and so I was really glad when, when Daphne shows up and they, they move off because I was starting to get really creeped out. Maybe that's the point of the scene is, you know, is to feel that creepiness. Right. To actually feel what it's like to be the focus of the uh, male gaze, that sort of uh, uh, very negative male gaze. And like this concentration of it when you're alone as a woman in this foreign country that oh you're my not God. familiar with. Yeah. So the other thing that happened in the scene was this whole monologue almost that Daphne had about the male elephants being cast off. And it really sort of gives you Daphne's worldview. Mm -hmm. She sees men as these victims of their own culture. Right. Very interesting and really goes well into the next scene. Well, I can confirm that that is ecologically correct, what she's describing. Uh, and it's true for, um, I have a, another career, another life in, in wildlife conservation and safari guiding. I've guided uh, quite a few safaris myself, um, which is, that's where I was on my last trip. If you are a longtime listener, you would have noticed my absence. I was actually in Kenya and Tanzania and explaining this very thing to my clients. No, you were in the Misty Mountains. Don't ruin the, don't, don't, don't. Oh, yeah. sorry. Don't, don't blow the fantasy. But it's true, uh, uh, and this is true for a lot of herd animals. When the male reaches, starts to begin coming into sexual maturity, they're ejected from their family group, and they'll go off and form bachelor herds. And at least with like uh, antelopes and, and other herbivores, you know, the males, as they get older and stronger, they'll have an opportunity to take, a, you know, to collect a harem for themselves during the, the mating seasons. But with male elephants, it's actually a little bit different and, and much more uh, awkward. I mean, well, to, to anthropomorphize it, it's a very awkward kind of situation 
where the bachelor groups uh, exist, but uh, um, there'll be a must bowl in the area who will um, sort of dominate an area. And he's really the only one that's that can breed with uh, other elef- the female elephants around. So being a male elephant, um, once you hit a certain age, because you're in a bachelor group, and that's kind of fun, and you play, and you wrestle, and you go, you go do stuff. But then later on, you know, it gets to be a much more lonely existence. And so I think at least when we see the boys jet skiing, right, they're in that sort of uh, prime of their male youthness and that competition and fighting, because you do see that a lot in, in male bachelor groups where there is a lot of competition and fighting, and it's all about sexual dominance. And I think that that's continued through the episode when uh, Cameron is kissing Ethan at certain points. Mm -hmm. I think that was way more like asserting dominance as an alpha than it was sexual. Right. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So this male elephant thing, thank you for going deep on it, because I don't know anything about this. (laughs) Uh, No, it's, it's interesting. And... I think it ties really well into this jet ski scene because the whole idea of them playing chicken on the jet skis right after this scene was very funny. Yep, it was beautiful. Yeah, very funny. Really great, so great, really great uh, 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 TV making. And they didn't seem as miserable as Daphne was saying. I mean, they were playing chicken competitively, <laughs> but I think they were both having a good time. Yeah, and I think that was that that that's the nice contrast is is like like she's like oh these poor guys you know can they even really be friends and then here you see these two guys being very very male right in 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 their behavior and in playing chicken and you know bouncing around on the waves and you see this competitive nature just growing in society even uh, mm-hmm. beyond you know just this between men it's it's become everything from sports teams to video games like console wars things like that to to politics it's everything is us versus them now. I think, well, and that, uh, not to get overly sociological or something, or, um, that uh, it does drive to a question of our tribal nature. You know, are we still, you know, just big tribe, bigger tribes, right? Right. Did we ever really leave the Fertile Crescent? Exactly. So we got another email from our friend Marta in Italy. Thank you, Marta, for writing in again. And she points out that the song, that Cameron and Ethan, that we hear when Cameron and Ethan are having their jet ski battle, is Il Nostro Concerto, our concert, by Umberto Bindi, and it's a love song. And in the show, she points out, in the show, we hear very clearly these lyrics, wherever you are, wherever you will be, you'll find me by your side. Okay, that's interesting. That's a, a, an interesting juxtaposition to what's happening is uh you know this competitive thing but then they end up they do end up going together right side by side right yeah you know sort of this bro stuff right right you gotta we gotta sort of wrestle with each other and and beat up on each other a little bit but it's really done in this sort of male competitive bonding thing right so at dinner cameron quizzes ethan about the state of his marriage and admonishes him that monogamy as an idea was created by elites to control the middle class. No, <laughs> I just uh, <laughs> disagree. But I, I don't know. I'm biased. I'm married. Uh, and and I yeah, I would love if we have anybody out there who has studied uh, 
sexuality and, and human relationships and these kinds of things, I would love some, some uh, history on, on, and thought on monogamy. Because uh, I was like, wow, this is some crazy stuff that Cameron's laying out here, uh, and he's pretty convinced of it. Well, and I'll say this. There is nothing wrong with consenting polyamory. Right. There is nothing wrong with having a relationship where both partners are free to pursue elsewhere or, you know, being in a throuple or whatever else you want to do. As long as everybody's on the same page, fine. Do whatever you want. That's perfectly fine. I don't think that that means he needs to go and say that the other way, that monogamy is wrong, uh, nor do I think he's correct that it's just this, like, way to control lower classes. I mean... I think it's just him trying to make excuses for himself the same way that Dominic is making excuses for himself by calling himself an addict. Right. Back at the Palazzo, Harper and Daphne talk about the essential natures of their husbands. Daphne reveals that Cameron has probably cheated on her, but she refuses to be victimized by it. So this is a pretty big conversation between them. Harper represents victims, right? That's her whole job. She represents victims. True, right? Because she's an HR lawyer, right? And so they're they're dealing with she's dealing with people who have been harassed at work, you know, uh, subject yeah. to unwanted advances, things like that. And I think HR yeah. lawyer is even broadening it too much. She is somebody who represents victims of sex-based discrimination. So in this, what the way that I was reading what Daphne was saying, it was that she was refusing to be victimized by it. As a like she says, don't feel sorry for me, right? Now, she is she a victim of of uh, her partner being uh, committing adultery? Yes, in a in a strict legal sense. But she's trying to not. She's trying to say to to Harper, like it's okay. Like I'm not. I'm not a wounded bird. I'm not. I'm not upset about it. He does that thing, and I have my ways of, of balancing it all out. So this is a tricky subject, and please, please, listeners, feel free to write in about it, because it is just something that is difficult to talk about and is something that has a lot of different points of view that are valid, is the idea of identifying yourself as a victim and how that helps you process trauma. Right. Or how it doesn't. I mean, I think that Daphne thinks that if she doesn't identify herself as a victim, she doesn't have to reckon with this, I don't think. I think she can just say, I punished him, it's over, we're done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas if she identifies as a victim, she's saying that this changed me, and this is part of who I am. This is part of me now, right. that I'm someone who has been cheated on. Right. And so... It's very smart to do this on something that is not sexual assault, I think, mm -hmm. and to have this sort of controversial opinion on something that is infidelity rather than something violent. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's just a really interesting conversation starter, and it's a conversation that we continue to have in society right now. How you just established that made me even realize some more things. It's like, Okay, well, Daphne's just, you know, brushing it off and, oh, I'm not going to be, I refuse to be a victim. I refuse to be victimized by it, right? Which, yeah, I think that's right, that, that it, by brushing it off like that, she's not actually dealing with it, as opposed to going, yeah, I have, this has happened to me. I have to deal with it internally and recognize the impact it's had on me so that then I can not be victimized by it, right? So that I can be whole and, and move 
move through the world again. Whereas just blush, just blowing it off and then playing her little power games, that's actually perpetuating the moral harm that's happening in the relationship. Right. It is a very tricky conversation, like I said. Very. There are a lot of viewpoints on this. On You know, nobody should be able to tell somebody who has undergone trauma how best to deal with that trauma. And Daphne is allowed to identify however she wants. It's just really interesting to see this right next to Harper. Yeah. Because Harper has a victim in her office every day. Right. I, I think it opens up a interesting parallel line here, too, because in a way, Albie's been victimized by his father's philandering, right? That whole family is in disarray right now. The, the, the daughter isn't talking to the father. The ex-wife is screaming at the, the ex-husband over the phone. Like, you know, she just like lost her shit. She was so hurt and upset. That's, that was her reaction was just to blow up. And Albie's trying to be the peacemaker here, but he's hurt as well. He's like, so they're all being victimized by Dominic's behavior here. So that's an interesting, uh, just, just seeing that in, in, in the light of what Daphne is telling us here. Right, exactly. Well, that's all I want to say about that subject. So why okay. don't we move on to something less troubling? but also more troubling. <laughs> <laughs> more troubling. Ethan and Cameron, uh, Lucia and Mia party. Uh, Ethan lets everyone into his room, but refuses Mia's advances. Cameron and Lucia get busy, and Harper tries to call Ethan, but gets no answer. Ethan decided to cheat on Harper. At, at a certain point, he chose to cheat on Harper, right? Uh-huh. He was getting wasted. Yeah. He was drinking like his life depended on it. He wanted to drink to forget. And I'm glad that he chose not to in the end, but I think I do think that it was pretty clear that at a certain point in the night, he was ready to go forward with this. I think that he made a bunch of choices that swept him into this circumstance. He's he is responsible for his own choices. And he was very much swayed. I mean, he'd been drinking all day. Um, you know, you know, Cameron swinging him into this. I think in the end, you know, he chose not to, and he's going to be racked with guilt uh, by this, even to you know to the extent of what he did and and participated in. He did kiss me back for a little bit, a little bit, and then he stopped. And I think he's going to be honest about. I mean, so far what they've shown us. And that'll be interesting is like when Harper and Ethan get back together, will he spill the tea? Will he straight up fess and say, hey, this is what happened and deal with it like they've been dealing with a lot of other things? Or will he try to hide it, which is going to then further rupture, you know, what ground they're already on? He's honest to a fault, Harper said this episode. Exactly. Yep. So they're setting this something up. I wonder if their marriage is going to fall apart because of this. Right. It'll be interesting. Did you, what did you think about the phone call? About her calling him? Yeah, because I've heard some people talking about like that he ignored her phone call. No, I don't think so. I think he didn't hear it. I think he was, first of all, just wasted. Oh, completely. By the time that that came in. And he was barely aware of his surroundings. Yeah. And then, the you know, the music was crazy loud. He, he couldn't hear it. I don't think he purposefully ignored that at all. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you on that one. Okay, David, that's enough of this problematic foursome. 
why don't we take a quick break? And when we get back, we'll get to the fun life of Tanya. And we're back. Peppa Pig is in the house. <laughs> You're never going to let her live that one down, are you? I'm never going to. Oh, all right. It was. It, it, it just tickled me. It tickled me pink like Peppa Pig. All right. So we've got Tanya and Greg and a little bit of Portia. So Greg packs his bags as Tanya looks on. And then at breakfast, they further confront the state of their marriage. We learn a few things that Greg will be back in two days and that Tanya was instrumental in Greg's recovery. Tanya reacts to Greg's admission about the number of times he's been married, and she confesses her love for him. <laughs> you said you were married three times. And he's like, yeah, before you. Like, it changed when we got married. <laughs> I was, as I was writing my notes, I was, I was bracing myself for your, uh, your Tanya McQuad uh, impersonations. Oh, I wasn't even trying there. You want me to do it again? <laughs> you said you were married three times. Oh, it's getting pretty good. It's, it's getting better, good. I think. I'm yeah. working on it. Right in. So Greg is back in two days. So that keeps him on the murder board or the death board, the death pool. And he's certainly dealing with something. I, I really don't know what to make of this. I don't know if he's being straight up honest about, you know, going back for work or if there's something going on with his health or if there's some sort of, I mean, like, why would he, why would he need to go back for two days? Why would he go for two days? And then come back if he has to, like, go see a second family or something. It just seems a little strange to me. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we don't have enough information to, to make a solid determination. Yeah, I don't know if he's cheating. I kind of don't think so. I think it was uh, a uh, red herring that we got last episode with the uh -huh. phone call. Yep. I don't know what it is. It could be health-related. I think we're just going to have to wait on that. We just don't have enough information. Um, what I loved about the scene was Tanya just melting into her pillows. Right. It was truly a display of pathetic nature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, Tanya is just so ready to pity herself at any moment. Right. And I think that we're being told that time and time again. Can I just say something? There are, there are these interviews after the episodes. I have not been watching them. Okay, I have. They're, they're really not spoilery. Okay. The they, the next time on is spoilery, and I did watch that this this episode, which I, I don't recommend if you want to avoid spoilers for the next episode. But it, past that is these interviews with the cast members, and they ask them the same stupid questions. It's like, do you do carry on or check? It's like stupid questions every time. But one of the questions is, who of the characters would you most like to travel with? And basically everybody says Tanya. And I'm like, Tanya seems like a nightmare to travel with. Yeah. What is wrong with these people that they think Tanya is nice to travel with? Yeah, I think it would be uh, uh, an awkward at best. <laughs> right. All right. Greg leaves for the airport and Tanya asks Valentina to find a psychic for her. The psychic does a tarot card reading and it doesn't go well as the psychic sees infidelity in the cards. Tanya kicks the psychic out of her room for being too negative, and then Tanya bribes Portia to stay with her using a copy of the new Vanity Fair magazine. You're so negative. <laughs> That's good. That was that was much better. I love Valentina. She was what did she say? She's like, uh, 
get the tarot card reader for the crazy lady. I was waiting for something in that whole scene <laughs> of Valentina. She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a tarot card reader in here. Oh, yeah, sure. And then I was like, and then she dropped the crazy lady thing. I was like, okay, there it is. There's my Valentina with her, her hard, her hard edged uh, um, uh, reactions to things. Valentina was really hilarious with this. And I love that Tanya said that it was an emergency. Yeah. <laughs> can you can you do a house call? It's kind of an emergency. It's like a doctor. Are you kidding? Right. Also, why did Portia need to be there mm. when Portia was sent to the bathroom the whole time? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just Tanya's codependency thing or whatever, you know, that's that's all about. Well, and I think Tanya didn't Tanya wanted to divulge something to the psychic, right, that she didn't want Portia to hear, which is ridiculous because like Portia is like going through her her pill jars in the bathroom and looking at her underwear like this is your virtue this is your personal assistant like they she knows a lot about you so like this one detail you're going to hide it was seemed a little strange Portia knows the family secrets completely Th- this is not someone that you can hide secrets from at this point like this right. is this is the person who knows your mind so when i watched this scene last night i re- rewound it and turned on the subtitles so that i could see what um the psychic was saying at during when the part you know where she starts to get manic about stuff and then there's no subtitles it just has you know uh, speaks italian and then you did a little reddit sleuthing and then marta our favorite italian listener wrote in with a, she translated what the um, psychic was saying is, madness will lead you to suicide. The truth, this is the truth. The cards are bad. It's dangerous. The fool has appeared, although in Italian she calls it il pazzo, which can also be translated as the madman. Pazzo, it's like pizza. Pazzo. Please seek help. So. There, as she continued to read the cards, she derived a, a secondary meaning here. So I think I'm I'm thinking red herring here with the whole like oh you know he's cheating on you kind of stuff that there's something else that uh, that's going on. And again, you know Mike White is seeding the ground here with murderous intent. I wonder. First of all, I wonder if it's Tanya's suicide. Mm-hmm. But I think you pointed out. Yeah. That Tanya said, I wonder if anybody's ever jumped. Right. Yes. On another episode. I think episode two, when she walks out on the balcony, she says, Yeah, oh, I wonder if anybody's ever jumped from here. Right. Yeah. So they're at least seeding Tanya's suicide. Right. Uh, and then Portia's looking at some pill bottles in, the, in her bathroom. That lady's got a pharmacy. <laughs> Are you surprised? She is, the, she is CVS's number one competitor. <laughs> Um, and, and she's not going to notice that her pills are missing to Portia because she just got so many. Right, right. Uh, yeah. And Por- didn't Portia take one or two? She like swallowed Yeah, I think she two? took a few. Yeah. Yeah. And what did she take? Yeah. I don't know. Some sort of, um, probably some sort of, uh, uh, you can't take antidepressants and have them react that quickly. So maybe some sort of mood stabilizer thing, some sort of like, you know, speed or ambient or I don't know, something like that. Or could have been like. Uh, a tranquilizer kind of thing, like yeah, something yeah. that is supposed to give an immediate effect. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You never know. Anyway, let's let's debate the drug she's taking all night. Uh, at dinner, Tanya learns that Portia has met a guy and admonishes her to not waste her life chasing emotionally unavailable men. 
Tanya notices that several other men at another table are, are staring at her as she leaves. One of the men waves goodnight to her. I love that. First of all, two things. I love that she did not know that they were smiling at her. Yeah, <laughs> totally oblivious to that. Yeah. And then Jennifer Coolidge is so good at doing this like cringy smile mm-hmm. in a way that I have never seen someone succeed in doing. It is so like, eh, like you, you can hear that sound when you see her smile. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's just perfect. I mean, Jennifer Coolidge is just a brilliant actress overall, and uh, she's killing it as Tanya. I think uh, I think she's uh, your reason for watching this, uh, getting me to podcast about this show. <laughs> if it didn't have her, I just think she's so funny. Yeah, I, if Jennifer Coolidge wasn't in here, I don't think that this would be the show that it. it you know, I think it would be a lot. The, the show would be much diminished without her. I think it would be a lot darker because I think that you know, much as she can be pathetic at times and can be like just depressing at times. Yeah, she does add a, a type of quirky awkwardness that gives some levity. And I know this episode was compared in some parts, especially with Harper and Daphne, to Big Little Lies, which is another HBO show, Mm -hmm. which is a really excellent show, but there's not a lot of lightness in it. It's a very dramatic show. Right. Um, And, and you know, I'd recommend it if you want more of that. But The White Lotus has a much different vibe where it's a lot more comedy-oriented, dark comedy-oriented. And I think that you need Tanya to have that happen. And I think that Mike White made a really good decision to bring her back. Right. I concur. Um, new player on the field. Uh, for those that know, um, in this group of foursome, I think we have a, a, a new character coming into the fold. Uh, we won't say much more about it. I'm not, I haven't done any reading or really paying attention to that. I don't know how much you have, but I think we've got a new, new dynamic element coming into the, into the, into the uh, story here. Do we? Yeah. All right, David, we have to check in on our bets. Yep. How are we doing this week? Well, drugs are involved, so, you know, <laughs> everything's <laughs> on the table now. Um, I think you, you are, uh, you're, you're putting Ethan in the, you put Ethan into the running, and I think with, between guilt and depression, I think you've got a strong runner there. Uh, for me, Greg's going to be back in two days, so that means he's not out of the picture. Um, I think uh, Mia is still, for me, a strong contender because she's moving off her character center, right? She was a sweet, somewhat, not completely innocent, but, you know, somebody who was trying to hold on to her virtues in some way, and she's slipping the more she hangs out with Lucia. So I'm still happy for that. But then, as we just hinted, we've got some new players on the field, so that could just change everything. Yeah. I still am pretty uncertain. I'm less certain this week than last week. Uh-huh. Ethan, like you said, I'm feeling stronger about, although I am feeling less strong about my incel theory. I actually do think he's being pretty genuine about most things. Yeah. I think that he I don't think he's attracted to his wife anymore, but I don't think that he's lying to her either. And I don't think that he's putting on a fake persona. So for Portia, I think that it's certainly a strong contender on the suicide part because she does seem profoundly depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was a, a Saturday Night Live skit a few years ago that is amazing and I would recommend to anyone. And it had Adam Sandler as the uh, the spokesperson for a vacation company that brought you to Italy. And in this, he said, I want to be very clear about what we can do for you. We can take you to Italy. 
we cannot make you a happy person. <laughs> if you're sad at home, you're still going to be the same sad you in Italy. Uh, and, and he goes on and on like this, and it's really right. funny. But it's so true, and like I just think that Portia is expecting some experience to change her outlook on life, and she really needs to figure out like how to approach living. You know, I don't think that she has a good approach to living at this point. She's way more focused on content and and being, you know, quote, unique than she is on just enjoying the moment. So I do think she's a strong contender, especially after she's sneaking pills from Tanya and she seems to have pretty good access to Tanya's room. So, Greg, I'm in agreement with you. I think that we are still in the running with Greg. I think that the call and the sudden departure do point to a health issue, perhaps. Uh, that or again, a second family. Have fun, Greg. No, you you have all the fun you want with that. But yeah, so those are my three still. I'm I'm still pretty good with them. We'll see where it goes. All right. Well, John, we've got one email to read today from our. I think we should give Marta an honorary lorehound badge. Yeah. How do you say lorehound in Italian? Write in, Marta. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, she says, to answer your question about the Monica VT, she says she's no expert, but I don't think the scene with Tanya and Greg on a Vespa is referenced to any of her films. So last episode, I was wondering if, if that was a, a direct reference. She says, I think it was supposed to represent the stereotypical foreign tourist who wants to recreate the famous Vespa ride in Fellini's La Dolce Vita. So that makes a lot more sense. Okay. Well, thank you, Marta. She goes on. As for the songs, in episodes two and three, there were many Sicilian songs, which I was not familiar with. Sicilian is a language of its own, and because I'm from northern Italy, I can't understand it. But I looked up the song that plays when Mia and Lucia are shopping. The title is Cutiludisi, Who Told You? Uh, and it's about the difficult love story. In the show, we hear the lyrics, Who Told You That I Must Leave You? Death is preferable to this pain. Ow, I'm dying, dying, dying. Soul of my soul, you are my love. So pretty traumatic. And then she says there's another song when Cameron and Ethan are having the jet ski battle. Like we covered that already. She said that's it for the episode. Look forward to hearing your take on it. Thank you, Marta. Honorary Lorehound badge. Um, thank you so much for, for writing in. It's fun to get your emails and it's really actually very helpful when we're trying to unpack some of this stuff. Um, what do you think about this um, Who Told You, this love story song? Who told you that I must leave you, death is preferable to this pain. I'm dying, dying, soul of my soul, you are my love. Is that Tanya relative to Greg, or is it just a general thing? Or is it, you know, between the, the, the girls, between uh, Mia and Lucia? Tanya did do a lot of uh, brain melting this episode, yeah. I think. Especially yep. like when she's laying on the bed, just yep. uh, just sitting there, uh, forcing Portia to be on the couch for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I think I think if anything, it's a reference to Tanya, but it might be more general. I think it's yeah. Again, it's just seeding the whole um, the whole context for the show for what's going on. Yep. All right. Uh, again, write in if you've got uh, thoughts, ideas, or hot takes for us. White Lotus at thelorehounds.com. Otherwise, that's it for us for this episode. John, what do we got up on deck for upcoming podcasts? All right. This week, we've got uh, another episode of Andor coming out on Saturday. Next week, we'll be back on Wednesday with the White Lotus episode four. Uh, we also have Silmarillion stories coming out just before Thanksgiving in the U.S., and we have Second Breakfast coming out sometime over the next week. And that's 
uh, an exclusive for our patrons. That's going to be where David and I talk about uh, different shows we're watching, books we're reading, games we're playing that we're not covering. And we're also going to take any listener questions from our patrons about anything. So that should be fun. Uh, again, if you're a patron, please feel free to write in uh, so that we can get to your question on the next Second Breakfast. You might not have enough time to get in on this one, but we'll, we'll be happy to take it in the future. And uh, hope you all enjoy, and we'll talk to you next week. The White Lotus Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can get ad-free and early versions of these episodes at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Connect with us on Twitter at the Lorehounds or by email at whitelotus at thelorehounds.com. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.